Hello and welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. I just want to begin by thanking you for your support and encouragement. A lot of people reached out globally over the last two weeks, sending their thoughts and prayers to my previous guests, Douglas Hogan and Coral Turner. Pilgrims are just so generous. We're up to week 131 of the podcasts, I think, and there are still so many stories to tell. I received a message from Apple this week to say the podcast is charting. Not sure what that means, but charting sounds good. I hope it doesn't mean that you and I are going mainstream, because we've never really been mainstream. But when you think about how many podcasts are released each week around the world, it's kind of nice to think your work is resonating with so many people. So thank you. This is a podcast about the Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James, a series of pilgrimages across Europe, and the most famous, or I suppose the most popular, is the Camino Francaise, which winds itself from the tiny French hamlet of Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port via Pamplona, Burgos and Léon, to the city of Santiago de Compostela, St. James, under a field of stars. They say the remains of Jesus Christ's apostle James the Greater, the son of Zebedee, are interred beneath the majestic cathedral in the centre of the old city. You walk down a narrow staircase to a crypt where you can kneel and pray in front of the silver casket housing St. James's remains. And it's a fitting end to your pilgrimage. Even if you're not a Christian, the sense of history and tradition is overwhelming. And pilgrims have walked the path for at least 1,600 years. Indeed, it's suggested the route itself is perhaps thousands of years old. So what makes it so special? Well, the answer is, I don't know. I simply help people, that is pilgrims, tell their story. Steve Maraboli is an American behavioural scientist, author and motivational speaker. He wrote a book called Unapologetically You, Reflections on Life and the Human Experience. And he said, Live your truth, express your love, share your enthusiasm, take action towards your dreams, walk your talk, dance and sing to your music, embrace your blessings and make today worth remembering. It's the kind of sentiment that motivates pilgrims and brings us together. Well, my guest this week is the Canadian pilgrim Martin Jamison. Yes, two Canadians in a row. Martin first contacted me, planning to walk the entire Camino Frances in May of this year. Well, I have him on the line to find out if he made it. Welcome, pilgrim. Buenos dias, Dan ah. Mullins. <laughs> Come on. Well, Diaz for you, it's nachas for me. Exactly. It is early in the morning. That's why my voice sounds like it does, because I sang 45 (laughs) songs last night, and it's early in the morning here. Come on. Did you make it? I made it. Every single step, which is something I really wanted to do uh, and did. Yeah, well, when you first wrote to me, you said you'd done short parts of the Camino Frances, but were determined to do the whole thing. How and why did you find yourself doing short sections? Well, it was part of how I actually got to know about the Camino in the first place that uh, we travelled to Santiago for the first time when we used to live in the UK back in, gosh, 1989, so 30 years ago. And I didn't really know what was going on then. I think my wife had a better appreciation. And uh, we, we saw some people with backpacks in the square outside the Basilica, and I didn't take much notice. Um... But it started to creep up on me because in uh, 2009, I traveled through Asturias and Galicia um, with my, in the Basque country with my son. And uh, 
he we went we ended up in Puente del Reina and we ended up in the little round church by the albergue as you come into town. Mm. I started to see what was going on and uh, it started to really intrigue me. So then we, my wife and I, were originally British, but we live in North America in Canada and uh, we go back to Europe at least a couple of times a year. And this particular time in 2013, we went to Spain and uh, she said, well, where do you want to go? I said, well, I'd like to go back to near the Camino. And we did. We went back to Puerto del Reina and we walked um, against the flow of the pilgrims all the way back to Alto del Perdón and back again, which was fascinating because you're walking against the flow with everybody coming towards you. And it started to really get interesting for me at that point. And um, three years later, I think 2015, um, well, we were going back to Spain again, and my wife said, where do you want to go? I said, I want to go to the Camino. And uh, so we picked another spot, and this was in the fall this time, and we went to um, uh, Villafranca del Biezo and stayed there, and we walked to Osobrero and back. So I was getting these little experiences, and... By then I was hooked. It just, you know, it was like I said to you, I decided then that I just had to have a go at this thing and I wanted to do every step. You mentioned that you're, you're, you're a Brit living in North America. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, blimey, um, just approaching 60 this year, midlife crisis. That's part of why I decided to uh, actually take on this thing. Uh, and uh, now was the time. But... Um, We've been in Canada now for 21 years. We're Canadians and British. Uh, I've got three kids who really grew up in Toronto, um, although they were born in Britain. And uh, it was a company move over to Canada, to Toronto. It was supposed to be just for three years as an international assignment. Uh, 21 years ago, we never went back. Uh, And we've, as I developed my career in Canada, uh, we ended up moving uh, from Toronto to the East Coast. Um, we have a house in Halifax in Nova Scotia, uh, where these days we overwinter. And um, more recently, um, we built the house where I am now in Trinity, Newfoundland, on the East Coast, the very East Coast, almost the, the most easterly point in North America, uh, in amongst the whales and the icebergs on the East Coast of Newfoundland, where we spend now the majority of the year. So I have to concede I don't know a lot about Newfoundland. I, I have really only ever seen pictures of it. But when I started doing some research, it's an incredibly beautiful place. It's quite extraordinary. I've just today just come in. We have a boat and I've just come in from having spent four hours on the ocean this afternoon surrounded by humpback whales, fin whales, minke whales, uh, it's that time of year now. The capelin are running, which is the main food of the whales, and uh, it's we're just drowning in whales at the moment. It's extraordinary, and it's very wild and very wacky, and not many people. There's almost more moose on uh, Newfoundland <laughs> than people. <laughs> more moose. You know, so, so you spend some time in Nova Scotia, and then other time in Newfoundland, Newfoundland. It's kind of like Canada's bookends, isn't it? <laughs> they're both on the East Coast. Oh, oh uh, I, I they see. Look very, yeah, they really look very near on a map. 
But as if we, when we drive in the springtime from Nova Scotia to Newfoundland, uh, we drive five hours north to, to the north of Nova Scotia where we get on a ferry. The shortest ferry crossing to Newfoundland is seven hours. Goodness. We then drive 11 hours across Newfoundland to reach Trinity where we are on the East Coast. Goodness. It's big. Oh, well, I see. It's very big. Yeah, I, I I thought for some reason Nova Scotia was on the other side of the country, but it's not. But hang on, so so you 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 travel eleven hours to get to Trinity. Once we've landed in Newfoundland, it, it, Newfoundland's almost as big as the United Kingdom, um, but the population's just a little over half a million people. I'm very enthusiastic about it. A lot of pilgrims on the Camino uh, would tell me I was a bit like the Newfoundland tourist board because <laughs> I want. To sh- I want to share it with everybody. It's 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 quite extraordinary, uh, and I would recommend anyone with an interest to think about travelling here because uh, it's one of the last frontiers. It's still very wild, but the infrastructure has developed to a point where it's comfortable for people as uh, to come here as tourists. How wonderful! But, I, uh, I've got to get there. I have to get there. That's just that's it. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Well, we can play us. We can play a song together in my attic where I am now. How wonderful. Fantastic. Okay. Now, you mentioned that the Camino entered your life because you had spent time in Spain. And, and, and you also wrote to me to say that you'd be happy to be interviewed, but you ought to issue a few, as you called them, government warnings because you are a total spreadsheet pilgrim. For my listeners who've only just discovered the podcast, a spreadsheet pilgrim is someone who plans everything before they go. Well, Martin Jemison, self-proclaimed spreadsheet pilgrim, how did it all work out, this last Camino? Well, it's, you know, quite, Dan, it's quite interesting because I am that. I'm a business guy um, at the tail end of a business career. And so the natural instinct is to be risk-averse and to plan. I like to know where I'm going and I like to know where I'm staying. And having experienced a little bit of a taste of the Camino, I was concerned at the same time that I didn't want to get involved in the what they call the race for the bed. And so I did plan. And in many ways, as I reflect on planning, yes, it has had its advantages, uh, particularly at the starting few stages. Um, it was very busy. Uh, Roncesvalles was full. Zubiri, end of stage two, was full. People were going from Zubiri in cabs as far as Pamplona to get a bed and then cabbing it back in the morning. With our reservations, because I should say my wife joined me for the first nine nine stages up to Legrono. Um, and uh, we had reservations, so we, we felt lucky, we felt privileged. Having said all that... Later in the Camino, um, I had made some errors in planning and I'd built in three or four shorter days um, out of fear, you know, a 14-kilometer day, a 16-kilometer day, thinking, well, I'll need some rest or I might be injured or whatever. And actually, it became a, a source of great frustration for me because I wanted to keep on going and I was doing just fine. And yeah. A four kilometer day was killing me. You know, I couldn't stop. I didn't want to stop. That's why I was doing side trails. Um, so, you know what? It has its advantages, but it also has its disadvantages. And there's no right way of doing this thing. 
It's interesting. Um, I always ask my guests about staying in albergues or did they stay in hostels or hotels? And you wrote to me and said, I won't be staying in albergues for three reasons. Firstly, at my stage of life, I'm done with sharing rooms. I like my privacy and I also snore and I don't want to be that guy that everybody curses at in the mornings. So (laughs) self-proclaimed snorer and room sharer, how did all of that work out? Well, it was okay. Uh, in fact, there was one moment in a town called Nahira, mm. which was the first stage on my own uh, long day, 30 kilometers a day from uh, Legrono. I, I love that walk. Uh, oh, I love that one. Well, I loved all of it. I love that walk. That particular night I was in a, yeah, I had my own room and bathroom, but it was one of the more challenging places I stayed because while people might look at me and say, okay, this guy had a room and a bathroom every night. That's correct. But it wasn't all the Ritz by any means. And the one in the era was particularly grubby. And uh, paper-thin walls. And being a snorer, which I perfectly uh, acknowledge, uh, my payback here was the fact that there were two American women next door to me in this place I stayed who decided to get up at like 5.30 and start banging around and talking to each other. And they did that for about an hour and a half and uh, before they left. And my only consolation was the fact that I probably got them at the other end of the night <laughs> at the beginning. I was, <laughs> I'd drunk about three quarts of a bottle of Rioja. And when I do that, I know I'm going to be a snorer. <laughs> so so uh, it, it just explains to me... Uh, if, if I stay, in, and there are people listening who are thinking of walking, so the reason I'm asking you this question is, if, if I stayed in Nahira, I stayed in the municipal albergue with 90 people. Uh, and it was, it was well, I'll, I'll, it was feral. And, but I absolutely loved it. But I think it was Donativo. So Donativo, I generally, I don't know, throw in 10 euros or something like that. There are some people who don't pay anything. How much were you paying per night for hostels or hotels as opposed to an albergue between five and eight euros? It varied um, from very little, 25 euros, to in some of the major cities where I was treating myself, 65, 70. Um, But... uh, there's no sort of straight answer. It was, it was a broad band. And you know what? Um, great accommodation. When I say great, I mean the sort of thing that I would maybe have done over 35 years in business isn't always available. I mean, Sa- I don't know how to pronounce this. Is it Sahagun, the halfway town? Sahun. Yeah, yeah, you... Sahun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was in a hotel there, and everybody was in the hotel. There were lots of pilgrims. They were all complaining bitterly about it, and it was it was grubby. But you know what? It was the only game in town. If you wanted to be in a hotel uh, and have your own room, it was really the only. But there were, there were plenty of hostels. But for people like me, I don't. I you know, I remember that wonderful passage. I think I said to this to you in the note uh, in Bill Bennett's book. Um, in uh, in Saint Jean Pierre de Port, where he was the snorer, and he didn't know he was the snorer, but the the pilgrims sort of turned on him in the morning and said it was you, and it came as quite a shock for him. Well, 
it wouldn't have been a shock for me because I'd know it was me. And I didn't want to be that unpopular guy. Um, I've, I, I'm a fly fisherman, passionate fly fisherman. And I travel back to Scotland every year in April to fish. And then, of course, I fish in Newfoundland and Labrador up here in Canada. And um, I've done my fair share of sharing rooms with, uh, you know, happy, drunk fishermen. And those days are well behind me. <laughs> I just that is so funny that you don't want to be want to be that guy. And Bill Bennett, I know Bill very well, and he would he'd most definitely not want to be that guy. You said to me, hiking is a big deal for me, along with many other outdoor pursuits, which in many ways is why we live most of the year in wild and wacky Newfoundland. But being someone used to the great outdoors, how did you cope with consecutive days of hiking, day after day after day? You know what? I absolutely loved it. And it's it's a bit weird because um, we, and we do lots of hiking. It's one of the reasons we're here. Uh, the East Coast Trail in Newfoundland is, is some of the most spectacular coastal hiking in the world. In fact, the Skirwink Trail, which some of your listeners might have heard of, I look out of our house across to the Skirwink headland where the Skirwink Trail is, and we have a counter on the Skirwing Trail, and over 40,000 people walked the Skirwing Trail last year, voted by National Geographic as one of the top 10 coastal hikes in the world. However, there's something about the Camino that isn't like the Pennine Way in the UK or the Appalachian Trail in the States or whatever. There's something else going on there. So the day after day after day became like a drug for me, and... I didn't want to stop. I, I planned in my planning, my spreadsheet, I had three days off, uh, one in Pamplona just because it was fun and my wife was with me. It was great. We had a lovely day. But then I had another one in Leon and another one in Burgos, or Burgos and then Leon. And I didn't want them. When I got to those cities, I didn't want to stop. So that's the distance hiking. But then on the Camino, there's a whole layer of other stuff going on which is harder to describe, which separates the various Caminos from the long-distance hikes of the world. It's a spiritual thing. It's, a, it's an emotional thing. It's, it's a, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's something going on which is, it just draws me. It's a feeling. It's, just, it's something different to a long-distance hike. You're, you're, a, you're a businessman, right? You're a sensible, smart, successful guy. How do you explain that? I've talked and you've no doubt heard me talking on the podcast about the energy, the spiritual and, and mystical nature of it. How do you make sense of it then, Mr. Spreadsheet Pilgrim? <laughs> it's really difficult. And in many ways, um, while the vast majority of people want the full experience that you have, because I know you're an Alberga guy, uh, from, it's great that the infrastructure on the Camino allows everybody to do it in their own way. If it was Albergas or hostels only, I probably wouldn't feel as compelled to have walked it as I did in the way I did it. Um, but uh, the, <laughs> when I was last in, well, not last, the time before in Villafranca del Biezo, it was late in the evening um, on a fall day, and we were up in the part of town where the Camino heads into town. And I was watching um, pilgrims flow into town 
uh, one every five minutes. It was later in the day. And I looked at them and I thought, I wish that was me. And I, I but I, then I thought, but it's not for me. I can be an onlooker, but I can't be a participant. You know, it's not for me for whatever reason. I haven't got the time. I've got uh, squash players' feet. Uh, it's just not going to be for me, but my goodness, I wanted it to be. So there was a very special moment for me on the whole thing where I thought, at that time, I thought, I wonder if one day I could ever actually walk down from the vineyards into Villa Frank del Biezo actually as a pilgrim. And I did it. And it was, the, it's, it's more than a hype. There's, there's something going on that really gets to you at a, at a deeper level. And I walked down into town that day and I was just on cloud nine. You know, just, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. You know that. Yeah, I, uh, that's one of my favourite towns in the world. Um, I've played gigs there uh, in a 500-year-old winery. I've played there twice now. I've gone back and played again. And I, that walk uh, from Cast... No, it's not Castrojera. It's... it's uh, I can't remember. But the, but the walk into town through the vineyards is, is absolutely spectacular. Just beautiful. Yeah, I want to... Yeah, I would say it was my my favourite spot, but it was my favourite spot because I wanted it. You know. But you know what? Just one final thing yeah. on that point. When I walked through the Spanish gates in uh, Saint Jean Pied de Port, I felt a bit like Frodo Baggins in setting out from Rivendell. It was six weeks without a, getting in a car. Um, it, it's it's something as I reflect on it and look back. It's something that you don't ordinarily do. It's something different to anything else I've done in my entire life. And it's just so positive. Yeah, boy, I can't wait to get back. I think just thinking out loud, that little town is Cacabelos. You walk through before you get to Via Franco del Biedo, beautiful part of the world. Now, you're a wildlife photographer as well. Uh, what do you love? about capturing a moment, a scene? Oh, man. I've just, this afternoon, uh, taken, I want to say, about 450 photographs uh, of humpback whales. Um, there was about 50 humpbacks uh, around the boat, uh, and there was just me and my wife and a couple of others in our boat. And when you capture that moment, and, and I have to say I'm a bit of a cheat because I take a lot of photographs to camera, uh, uh, shutter speed, very quick, and you'll maybe get three or four uh, out of really good ones, out of three or 400 shots. And it's, it's a real sense of elation to have caught something which you feel very privileged um, to witness. And it's the same thing as I was doing my daily posts from the Camino. Uh, you know the, uh, the, the, um, the landscape and the architecture and the sense of history in northern Spain, in that part of northern Spain, and further north to the coast. Uh, you know, I quite fancy the Norte because we've travelled a lot through the Picos de Europa National Park and the Basque Country. It's, a, it's, a, it's an area where man's um, uh, activities on the landscape has been accretive 
to what you see rather than detractive. And, and I have to say that one of the things that uh, drives me back to Europe every sort of three or four months is the fact that in North America, we don't seem to be, there are exceptions, but we don't seem to be building anything for the future. Um, I look at a, you know, if I'm in Scotland and I look at a dry stone wall or a croft or an old church, it actually adds to the landscape. It doesn't detract. And it's the same right across the Camino. So as I was taking photographs on the Camino, it was the same thing. It was a privilege uh, to be there and witness it. You're originally from the UK. We can hear that in your voice. You've been in Canada, as you said, for 21 years. Have you struck a balance, do you think? Are you Canadians now or are you still Brits living abroad? Uh, we're nowhere Canadians. We didn't come here to be British. Um, uh, not that we we decry Britain in any way. Um, I'm originally from Liverpool. Uh, I grew up in the early 60s when the Beatles were coming to the fore. Mm. Uh, and so that's my hometown. But, you know, um, it's weird when you, when you again, it's, I, I use that word privilege, to go and set up and home in a, in a foreign country, which is what we did, and to be accepted by the country. And now we are citizens and my kids are citizens. And, I, and we, have, we have a European passport, at least for now, and a Canadian passport. It's a fantastic thing. It broadens your world view. But in many ways, you're never quite settled when you do that because we don't really have a sense of identity in many ways and we don't have a sense of really where we belong uh, I sometimes look at people who stayed in the place where I was born. We, I still have friends back in, in Liverpool who have a real sense of belonging and a sense of identity as their kids do, but we, we don't have that. But my goodness, I wouldn't swap it for the world, both yeah. experiences. And, we- you know, with all this Brexit nonsense going on, uh, I look at my Canadian passport every day and thank heaven for that right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, well... You know, um, the reason I ask that, Martin, is because I wondered if being a, a Liverpudlian who's now in Newfoundland, Newfoundland, if there is an element of your being that is a little unsettled and therefore may be more inclined to pilgrimage. Perhaps you are looking for something. It's an interesting perspective. Um and the way I'll respond to that is to say, you're half right. Um, but the balance of it, you know, as I think back to usually mornings on the Camino, um, I was afeard, like everybody, of getting injured. And I did loads of training, uh, which I'm sure we'll come back to, uh, to avoid that. And, it, and I avoided it. Um, and... Um, there were mornings where I was striding away, feeling strong, looking at the horizon, thinking, I'm just really happy, like really happy. I don't want to be anywhere else this morning but here. I should have been in Newfoundland planting my spuds, mowing my grass, but uh, I wanted to be where I was. And having had a 35-plus year career in the office, um. I felt so lucky. And, you know, people say, did it change you? Well, I I wanted to slow down. I wanted to learn to try and live in now time. So 
here's a thought. I hope I'm not going on too long, but the um, there's a whale scientist in the area where we live here who cornered this uh, concept of now time, and I think it's really powerful. And the whales that I was out there on the ocean with this afternoon, they live in now time. They're not concerned about tomorrow like we humans are or the next month or the bills or the new car they want to buy or, or whatever's going on in the future or don't, they don't have regrets and, and concerns about the past. They live in now time. And if you can find a way to live in now time, it's actually an extremely low-stress place to exist. And I wanted to try on the Camino to block out the future to some extent to block out the past and try to live in the present and i half achieved it and that was a massive deal for me how how did you do it how did you do it uh, uh, there'll be people listening to us right now on the camino de santiago and they'll be trying to do that trying to block out the rest of the world to live in the now how did you do it, it in many ways but in the same way that drove the rhythm that is behind your so powerful Camino song. You focus on your feet. You focus on the earth underneath your feet. You focus on the many millions of feet that have gone before you. And you start, you, you, and you get into this rhythm. And, and I used um, walking poles. And if you use them properly, you really get into a rhythm. And that in itself blocks out interference uh, in your thoughts. And that then, after several days of practice, when you're getting into the, you know, the long stretches on the meseta, um, it allows you to, to empty your mind. And, you know, I wasn't, uh, I didn't develop uh, necessarily, a, uh, there was people I, I was going to say a Camino family, I found I didn't want to walk with the same people every day. Now, I saw lots of the same people who became friends. But I, I said in one post, you know, I was questioning whether I was actually antisocial um, because I wanted to walk alone most of the time, not all of the time, most of the time, because of that experience that I'd never had in 40 years of stress and strain. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a, a great thing about the Camino is space and time. And we so rarely have space and time. Uh, They're such simple things, really, uh, that I think every soul yearns. And when we can find it, we don't want to let it go, which, which is perfect. Uh, it, Exhibit A, Martin Jamison, who gets to a town where he's booked a room and doesn't want to stop there, wants to keep walking. So you mentioned side trails. What, what did you mean when you said earlier, oh, that's why I walked side trails? Well, in the, uh, in the Briley Guide, there's various um, uh, side trails you can do uh, that are sort of an out and back. Uh, and, and conveniently for me, there were several places where I finished early uh, say, I'm, I, you know, forgive me, I can't think of the name of the place, but uh, I arrived at one place, um, which was an albergue hotel combo. 
um, where I'd arrived at like 1.30. And a lot of people, when I listen to your wonderful podcast and read about the Camino, they talk um, excitedly and enthusiastically about the long Spanish afternoons. Mm. I really struggle with those because I don't know what to do. And so I wanted to keep going. So in that particular place, there was a, a 10-kilometer, five-each-way side trail to a hermitage and a reservoir. So I would keep my backpack on <laughs> and off I'd go because I didn't want to stop. <laughs> so there were several of those. Do you know how many, how, how far further than the standard Camino you ended up walking over the course of the six weeks? Oh, 50 or 60 clicks, that's okay. all. Okay, all right, right, right. Uh, right. It wasn't a huge thing, but yeah, uh, yeah. it was just, when I was looking forward to a 14K day, I was thinking, oh, no, I'll, you know, I wouldn't do <laughs> I know, that's, when you mentioned that before, I was thinking, that's not very far, but, you know, if, you, if, if you've planned it, Martin Jamison, you've planned it, right? So you're not going to, you, you, <laughs> right, don't, 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 don't mess with the plan. So you, you mentioned earlier that you had walked uh, before this Camino, you'd walked little bits and pieces and, and from time to time you walked there and back. I think you mentioned walking to Osobrero and back. Yeah. Walking against the Pilgrim flow, you wrote to me and said, you get a full picture of what an eclectic bunch of people from all over the planet Camino pilgrims really are. Well, that must have been very interesting. It was fascinating. Uh, first time we did it was walking towards Alto del Perdón from Puente del Reina. And it was the first time. And I was quite shocked to see uh, the broad variety of people, old and young, from every color and creed and religion and culture around the world. It was part of the joy. Um, and then we turned around and we walked with them. It was quite funny, actually, walking down from Osibiro back down to Las Herrerias and onto Rutilan, and mm. people were saying, you're going the wrong way. <laughs> and we were saying, we've already been. We're on our way back. <laughs> uh, but, it, it, you know, by that time, it, it had got me. And last October, it was October the 11th, last fall, I said to my wife, that that's it. I'm doing it. And she said, doing what? I said, I'm doing the Camino, the whole thing. And uh, she said, well, good luck. Uh, but she joined me for the first 10 days, which was lovely. This is where I'm going to get to show off a bit here. You were walking into Santiago and struck up a conversation with a pilgrim called Steve. Tell us the story. Oh, man, it was... Uh, what a wonderful guy he is. Yeah. He was with his daughter. Yeah. And uh, we were... We were walking, it was probably, I don't know, six or seven kilometers outside of the suburbs of Santiago, coming down the hill, and uh, he was chatting away to his daughter, and I came alongside, and he said, hi, I mean, he was a real, real appealing sort of guy that you want to talk to, and we chatted, and uh, I'm trying to think of how you actually came up in the conversation, but... Uh, I think he said you did. I think you asked him if he was a spreadsheet pilgrim, didn't you, or, or vice versa? That, you know, totally right. Yeah. I, I, he asked me, and I said, "Yes, I am." And I said, "Where did you get that term from?" And then you came up, and I realised that after out of all these people and all these kilometres, I'd actually coincidentally 
bumped into a Dan Mullins, My Camino, the podcast interviewee. Yes. What Steve, a thrill that was. Yes, Steve <laughs> Walter. Yeah, from Idaho. He's from Eagle, Idaho. He's, I don't know what week he is, but I just think that's fantastic. That's just so great <laughs> to hear about that. But you know, you, you know what, Dan? I, I, uh, as well as being the Newfoundland Tourist Board on this Camino, <laughs> I was also the Dan Mullins publicist. <laughs> uh, and, and I... I I, I ran into quite a number of people who were well aware of your wonderful programs. Well, but quite a few Australians who weren't. Oh, and okay. so I was saying, shame on you, Australians, for not knowing you have this man in your midst doing this, this amazing work. So you've, you've, you, your listening figures will have gone way up. Oh, that's very, very kind of you, Martin. Enough about me. Although I will tell a very quick story if you'll indulge me. I was, I was writing. The song, somewhere along the way, the Camino song, sitting at a table in a cafe in Hontanas. I had the guitar beside me, and the guitar had the stamps on it, cellos on the soundboard. And a woman walked past me, and then walked back past me, and then walked back past me again. And I thought, why is she looking at me? Um, and she said, are you Dan? And I said, yes, yes, I am. And she said... I finished 20 minutes ago listening to the podcast where you said that you would be walking the Camino carrying a guitar and getting stamps on the guitar. And here I was, American girl called Cindy, beautiful person. We sat down and had a cup of tea and she had only just finished hearing me say that I would be walking the Camino and getting stamps on the guitar and then she ran into me in Hontanas. Now, you and I have been back and forth over the last year waiting for the right time to talk. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you said this week, we're settled and sorted in Newfoundland and ready to talk. And when I say settled, I don't really mean it because the Camino experience doesn't easily let you settle back into ordinary living. So tell us about that. How is that going now? Well, exactly the same as when I made those comments to you. It doesn't let you settle. Um I'm going, the, the life we live here in Newfoundland in the summer months is quite wonderful. And I'm sort of going through the motions and carrying on all of the wonderful things we do. But at the same time, it's not quite the same. And I can't figure out why. Um, it's not about the walking, because I could exit my front door with the poles and walk 22 kilometers to Fort Point, which is the lighthouse I can see in the distance, and back. But it wouldn't be the same. And as I look back on the Camino experience, I sort of, many, many days, I, I just want to be back there. Um, so I don't know how it's going to play out. I only finished on June the 19th. So it's only about a month. Um, but I don't know how that's going to play out. I'm already wanting to go back. Um, so, you know, watch this space. I, I really don't know. I, I You know, I, I feel good and proud to have completed it. And I feel um, a little calmer in myself. And I'm reaching now time a little bit better than I used to. But uh, I'm not settled <laughs> at all. Are, are, you, are you a spiritual person, like, by and large? I'm, I'm absolutely. I am. I'm a, I'm a little bit religious, dead spiritual, and probably a little bit of a romantic. 
Um, and that's why I mentioned Frodo Baggins. The, the challenge and the, you know, I was taking the photos along the way that everyone takes of the trail winding into the deep distance in front of you. And that is a romantic thing. It, it, uh, it inspires me. What aspect of your pilgrimage are you looking forward to incorporating into your day-to-day life? The, the slowness, the, the, the fact that it doesn't have to be a rush. Um, we have two, as part of what we enjoy here, we have two 16-foot-6 Kevlar canoes. When we first came to Canada, we looked around and thought in the first few weeks, okay, what do we need to do to be Canadian? Well, we've got to get a canoe. Because <laughs> all Canadians have canoe. You've got to learn to skate, and you've got to get a canoe. And we did both. And uh, anyway, um, I'm a lousy canoer, not because I can't make the canoe go forward, but I'm an A to B guy. I have been all my life. So I'm at A, and I can see B, and the objective is to get to be really as quickly and as straight lined as you can. And that's not what it's about. It's not about getting to B. It's about the process of the distance between A and B. And that's what the commune is about. So I set off up the hill out of Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port like a rocket. Uh, always told myself I wouldn't do that. But over day after day after day, you start to find your pace and you start to slow down. And with it, your life slows down, probably your blood pressure as well. And by the time I got into, I guess, the stage beyond Léon, into and including Galicia, I was a much slower person, and I liked that. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, much slower person. We could all do with that. Hey, um, Martin Jemison, tell us a Camino story. Okay. I, I had flagged up. I've got a, a couple here, but... Um, well, we can... I'd love, to, I'd love to hear a couple. Go ahead. Okay. Okay, so look, you, you spend six, one and a half months without getting in a car, not me. So there were three or four points on my spreadsheet where I was not staying on piste, let's call it. I was staying off-piste uh, a few kilometers off the Camino, and the place I'd booked to stay would come and collect you, and then they'd bring you back the following day, which all seemed a bit luxurious. But anyway, I walked into, uh, um, I'm trying to look for the, the name of the town here, Mazarif, oh. lovely little village yeah, uh, yeah. towards the end of the Seta. And uh, my place of lodging that night was a house that was about 10 kilometers further down the Camino from Mazarif. So the instructions were to call from the uh, albergue Tio Pepe, which looked like a lovely albergue, uh, and they would come and pick you up. So I called. Um, the the proprietor's wife had a little bit of English, and she said, yes, we'll come and collect you. Go and stand outside and wait for 10 minutes. So I did. Her husband came to pick me up in was what turned out to be a two-week-old new car, Peugeot 208, and he didn't have any English and I had very little Spanish so we sort of greeted each other very nice chat and uh, I hopped in and we sort of gestured at each other and set off towards where he was taking me to the place we were staying the road out of town was a straight road as they often are on the Meseta um, 10 kilometers and just about room enough for two cars 
and it was quick. It feels quick when you first get in a car. So it, we're driving. We came up, up behind a small local uh, uh, van with the guy. It was mega hot. And this guy had his arm hanging out the window. He certainly wasn't looking in his mirror of anyone behind him. And my guy decides he's going to overtake. And it was one of those moments where you're thinking, oh, no, it, it's too, don't do it. It's too tight. <laughs> and I'm, re- I'm pressing for the imaginary foot brake, you know, in the passenger seat. Anyway, he went for it. And you'll know, Dan, that in the Meseta, there's all these, current, all these uh, network of irrigation everywhere. And what one of the little culverts was going under the road at this point, he decided to overtake with these huge slabs of concrete on either side, which make the bridge. Well, he hit this slab of concrete at 35 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour. And he, he didn't just have a blowout. He destroyed the two left-hand wheels of his car. So there was these two enormous explosions. Bang, bang. Oh. And... The shockwave came through the car and set off the airbags on my side of the car. So then there was bang, bang, bang. And one of these airbags hit me right in the side of the head. And we were like, what just happened? And so we pulled to a stop. No. And he got out. The poor man was distraught. I was distraught because I'd lost the hearing in my right ear for a while. Don't ever be in a car where the airbags go off. I can't recommend it. And uh, it hit me in the side of the face, and they're hot, you know. And anyway, we got out. The other chap stopped. They rattled on in Spanish for a while. And uh, then he phoned his wife, and I could hear his wife shouting at him down the phone. And we sat there in the blazing sun for about an hour and a half before we were rescued by a cab. So there's a story. Goodness. You're going to spend a you're going to spend an hour, uh, one and a half months without getting in a car, and you get into one for 10 minutes and nearly kill yourself. <laughs> What a story. I know Vila Mazarifa, beautiful place. Goodness, and I can imagine what it was like sitting out on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. Gosh, well, t- that's amazing. Tell us another story. I want to hear another one. Okay, this is one a bit lighter, a bit more amusing. So um, I walked, as I said, with poles and love them, my lecky poles. And they had posh rubber bungs on the bottom. These rubber bungs are not straight rubber bungs. They're the ones that tilt backwards to give you extra leverage, right? So I was walking through, um, uh, you mentioned this town before, Casabelos. Yeah, yeah, Casabelos, yeah. Uh, on the way towards Villafranca. Yeah. And I'm wa- walking through the margins of the town across a junction of a road. And below me was a eight-inch wide grid that went about nine feet or maybe 20 feet across the road and with slats in it. And I'm walking away and didn't realize that one of my sticks had come down the, the, one of the holes in the grid. And I, I pulled up my stick and I'd lost my rubber bung. And this was a tragedy. How do you get on without walking on tarmac without your rubber bung? So I stopped, took the round thing off the bottom of my stick and, and looked down into the grid. And I, fortunately it was dry. Um, and I was looking for my bung. It's about eight inches deep, had some leaves in it. And I saw my bung. So I was trying to spear it. So I speared this bung and I pulled it up. And it wasn't mine. It was a straight one. And so I moved along and I speared another. To cut a long story short, before I actually speared mine, I had actually collected 11 rubber <laughs> bungs from pilgrims. 
And I was just throwing them on the pavement behind me and beside me. And people were saying, other pilgrims and locals were saying, are you okay? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm just looking for me bung. And, and I was spearing these bung. Anyway, when I finally speared mine and got it back, I turned round. And you know what? There were just two bungs on the sidewalk. Other pilgrims had been coming past. <laughs> Taking advantage of the moment of me pulling all these buns out of the grid, it just shows you how many pilgrims go by. Is... About an hour later, I uh, came across this woman from Mexico, and she turned around. She said, "It's well in Mexican, it's you." And she lifted up her stick and thanked me profusely for her new bun. <laughs> That's great. That's great. The yeah, the clicking of the unbunged poles is another story, isn't it? The rattling of in the early in the morning. That's great. That's great. Can I ask you, Martin, for a Camino or a pilgrim tip, a secret? Give us a secret. Uh, well, I'm I'm in your uh, I'm grateful to you for contributing to this secret, this Camino secret. One of your podcasts many moons ago. Uh, you were talking to a uh, uh, a female pilgrim, and forgive me, I can't remember her name, but I think she was from your part of the world, and she was hotly recommending a product from New Zealand called Hiker's Wool, and my ears pricked up when I heard this, and I brought, uh, well, I, I reached out to New Zealand, went on their website, uh, that's the brand name, Hiker's Wool, and researched it, and basically what they do is they when they shear sheep, and there are one or two sheep in New Zealand, uh, along with Australia, um, they uh, shear the sheep, and then without hurting the animal, they harvest a little bit more of the finest wool from closest to the animal's skin, very rich in lanolin. And they basically pack it up in little reams. It's almost weightless, so it's fantastic to carry. And you basically wind a little bit of this um, hiker's wool in 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 and out of your toes in the morning before you put your socks on and not only does it completely prevent blisters but it also wicks moisture away and it supports your toes and then in the occasion that you might feel a hot spot say on your heel or whatever during the day a little bit of hikers will stuff it down your sock it sticks to the inside of your sock like velcro so it stays in position and guess what uh hot spot goes away it is the most remarkable innovation from your part of the world, and I can hotly recommend it to everybody. Hiker's Wall. How good is that? What's, what's one thing you learned about yourself, do you think, in this Camino journey? Probably that um, it's a bit of a regret, actually, that uh, life so far, and I'm 60 in September, uh, has passed by a little quick because of the the Western way, if you're disposed that way, and I guess I am, to chase uh, a career in business, international business. It just goes by so quickly and it speeds up as you get older. And what the Camino taught me about me was that it didn't have to be that way. And now I've got the good fortune, if I stay healthy, in the next 10 or 15 years to find a slower way of doing things and not have to go into the office anymore. So that's really what I learned. What's one word that you would use to sum up your experience? 
Um, tricky one. Um, freedom. Okay. Now, you mentioned that you've only been home about a month. There'll be people who ask you in the coming days and weeks what it was like, the Camino de Santiago. What will you tell them? Well, there's people who are really interested and there's people who are taking a side interest. So uh, the first thing I do is warn people when they say, oh, it must have been marvellous, Martin. I'm, I want to hear all about it. And I say, be careful what you wish for. I've got about one and a half hours and photographs and lots of stories to tell. But uh, generally speaking, um, I... I posted a daily post on Facebook. I wrote my first ever journal of my entire life. And what I'm finding is people are, a lot of people, more than I expected, are genuinely interested and really, really want to know what it's all about. And, you know, I've, I, I, a great pleasure for me is I've inspired a number of people to look at it very closely themselves, to have a go. And why not? Yeah, why not? You know, I love Canadians. I love the Tragically Hip, the band. Oh, uh, me too. Yeah, good. I'm looking forward to getting over there in 2020 next year to promote my new record. That's another story. But we, we both mentioned there Gord Downey. On the 2002 album In Violet Life, he said... At the dire wolf's crest, the Newfoundland paused. Desolate's best was gotten across. We were never more here, expanse getting broader, when better boats been done by this water. We're lucky people, aren't we, Martin? Oh, without question. Um, the idea of being able to take a month and a half and uh, do this thing and having friends and family stand to one side and, and sort of allow that to happen. Uh, it's, it's a privilege. It's a total privilege. And I want it again. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know, I know, I know. I, I like to think of the Camino as a means to humility. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. It's a great leveller. Uh, many of your correspondents have said that, and it's so true. No one gives a monkey's where you're from. They don't give a crap what car you drive, um, what kind of house you live in. And for me, I was really looking for that. I wanted to restore a little bit of my faith in humanity, which you lose. You know, when, in a business career that ended up in sort of private equity where real big money's involved. And, you know, when you see really big money being moved around and manipulated, you see something of the worst of human behavior. And I wanted to get away from some of that and try to restore some of my ideas about humanity. And the Camino gave me the opportunity to do that. And it, and it did it in spades. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, Martin. I, I think that's the perfect place to leave our discussion. Long may you and yours enjoy your pilgrim journey. Thank you, Dan. I, uh, I'm already exploring the Norte 2020, and uh, maybe our paths will cross at oh, some point. Well, I'm, guitar. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get up there and play that, uh, that Taylor uh, <laughs> in your attic. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Don't worry, you won't stop me now. It's on the list. Thanks so much for talking to us. And Buen Camino, Martin. Thanks for having me along for the ride. Uh, buen Camino.
My guest this week, the Canadian pilgrim Martin Jamison. Steve Maraboli is an American behavioural scientist, author and motivational speaker. He wrote a book called Unapologetically You, Reflections on Life and the Human Experience. He said, live your truth, express your love, share your enthusiasm, take action towards your dreams, walk your talk, dance and sing to your music, embrace your blessings and make today worth remembering. Walk on, pilgrims. Just as a side note, I now have a release date for my record that I've been talking about for forever. Uh, Dan Mullen's Duende, the album, will be out on August the 23rd. Uh, I'll let you know more about it in the days and weeks ahead. I'm Dan Mullins. Thanks for your company. Until next week, Buen Camino. Somewhere along the way Someone